This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For a 14-day free trial and for a limited time, 20% off the annual membership, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. Uh, we've got we've got a special author guest on, and I, I think I think we should just jump straight into it because we've got him patching in in just a second. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of who he is. I'm sure you've seen him before. This is Professor Michio Kaku, who is the go-to physicist, quantum theorist, string theorist. You would have seen on a hundred different TV shows, futurist as well, and obviously popular science author as well as research physicist. So. Uh, he has a new book out right now called The God Equation. It dropped just this week, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And and we have him on the line. So Very excited for this. I know. Here he is, Michio Kaku. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be on the show. So this book, you take us through the various steps through history on the quest to find a th- rules of physics that basically explain the entire universe, the theory, the theory of everything, the grand ultimate aim of physics uh, one of the things i hadn't realized from the until the book was how every single time there's been a step forward in this it's come with an accompanying leap forward in technology uh in the things we use in our life like right from the newton's laws through maxwell's laws and so on that's right uh when newton discovered the laws of mechanics and gravity he unleashed the industrial revolution the initial revolution based on the motion of machines and forces. That changed world history. And then when James Clerk Maxwell worked out electricity and magnetism, that gave us the electric age with dynamos and generators and the internet. And then with E equals MC squared, Einstein helped to unleash the nuclear force. And the quantum revolution gave us the internet, transistors, lasers. So each time we unravel the force, Human history also changed. And now we're on the verge of a theory of everything. That is the whole ball of wax. The final theory is within grasp. So I want to work towards that because you you end the book by talking about string theory, which has been your area of research for um, many, many years. But um, So I, I want to get to that at the end, but I, I'd like to go through the bits that I at least have some understanding of first. <laughs> so... Because that string theory is very much where my my ability to understand even vaguely what's going on very much slips away. Um, but I, I don't I don't know why I didn't know this, but I didn't know that Maxwell's equations predicted the speed of light, and that was the key to un- for Einstein to unlocking his theories. That's right. Maxwell and Faraday show that when you change an electric field you create a magnetic field. When you change the magnetic field, like you vibrate it, it creates an electric field. So then he asks himself a simple question. What happens if you shake an electron to get an electric field, which creates a magnetic field, which creates an electric field, which creates a magnetic field? It vibrates. You get a wave. When he calculated the wave from first principles, he found the speed of light. He was amazed. At that point, he said, this is light. That's what light is, vibrating electric and magnetic fields. The unification of electricity and magnetism gave us the electric age. So whenever we unify a force, we change human history. I also didn't realize that Maxwell's equations had enough complexity to also theorize that you couldn't catch up to light. I assumed that was something that was Einstein era, but... But built into that, built into his equations, you can realize that for some reason you you can't catch up to it? That's right. Uh, Maxwell wrote his equations around 1860, around the time of the American Civil War. If people took those equations seriously, they would have realized that the speed of light is a constant, no matter which way you move. If you move a leg being to the left, to the right, up or down, the speed of light is always the same. That is the kernel of special relativity discovered by Einstein 50 years later. So we could have had relativity during the time of the American Civil War. That is incredible. Yeah, I don't think I realized how far 
ahead or what a huge leap forward Maxwell and Faraday were in understanding the world. So let's let's take a step back because before Newton, what what were the ideas about how things moved and how the world worked? Well, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks had two paradigms to explain everything. One was Democritus, who talked about atoms. A means cannot, tum means cut, so atom means that which cannot be cut. <laughs> but Pythagoras said no. Pythagoras said it's music. He watched the lyre string and noticed that the longer the lyre string, the lower the note. And he said, music is the paradigm of the universe. It's rich enough, it's complex enough to give us an understanding of the complexity of the entire universe. Well, unfortunately, both theories never went anywhere because the Roman Empire fell apart and darkness enveloped Europe for a thousand years. But then, with the coming of the Renaissance, we began to revive the idea of atoms, and now we ask ourselves, what is an atom? The latest theory is that atoms are nothing but vibrations on a tiny infinitesimal string. That if you had a super microscope and could look into an electron, you would not see a dot at all. You would see a vibrating string. And when it changes vibration, it changes to a different particle. And so we have a nice way of visualizing the hundreds of subatomic particles that we see whenever we smash protons apart. So, so that's astonishing. So in a way, these two sort of archaic ancient Greek ideas were substantially closer to the truth than or certainly than the sort of 18th, 19th century scientists would have thought. That's right. So Democrates was right that the universe is made out of atoms. But when you split atoms apart, you get subatomic particles, hundreds of them, and they in turn are like musical notes on a tiny, tiny, tiny vibrating string. So what are the electrons and neutrinos? They're nothing but notes on a tiny vibrating string all around us. What is physics? Physics is the harmonies of the vibrating strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play on interacting strings. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God that Albert Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after? The mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That is the mind of God. Does that feed a little bit too much into some, um, I could see a world in which that sort of thing gets co-opted by the same hippies who use quantum to apply to anything <laughs> at all. Just, you know, hey, it's vibrations, man. Well, in some sense, it is correct. But of course, it says everything and it says nothing. You have to give the equations. And that's where the God equation comes in. We're not talking about God, per se. We're talking about an equation. Now, a few years ago, the Nobel Prize was given to two physicists for the God particle, the Higgs boson, which made possible in some sense the Big Bang. But what was the equation? The equations that allow you to calculate everything about the Big Bang. That's the God equation. So in some sense, the universe is like a chess game. Over 2,000 years, we've been able to figure out how the pawns move, how the bishop and the knights move, one day we'll get the God equations, we'll figure out all the rules of the game, and then become grandmasters. <laughs> so I personally think that's the destiny of humanity. The destiny of humanity is to find the God equation and then become a grandmaster to this chess game that we call the universe. That's a beautiful way of putting it. The, the idea of vibrations and harmonies also gave, in, in the book, it gave me a better idea of the understanding of the way quantum theory means that we have to have certain specific levels and specific values for the way things move and the way things vibrate. Discrete quanta, uh, for example, the way that uh, light in stars shine has to be according to the exact frequencies, depending on what the makeup of the different uh, atoms and elements are inside it. That's right. So when people talk about vibrations, that is, well, everything and nothing. You have to give the equations for these vibrations. And that's where the God equation 
comes in the picture. That's why Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after an equation. Now think of E equals MC squared. Even school children recite E equals MC squared because it unifies matter, M, with energy, E. But Einstein wanted a bigger equation, also one inch long, that would allow us to unify the universe, the entire universe wrapped up into a single equation, one inch long, and he failed. But this is where we physicists think that we can now complete the picture. And by the way, the equations for string theory are about two inches long, and that's my equation. My equation is string field theory, which allows you to summarize string theory into an equation about two inches long. But we now have membranes, and we now are in the 11th dimension. So we need an even higher equation, and that's the God equation. So if any of your listeners, if any of your listeners ever find the God equation, be sure to tell me first. <laughs> we'll, we'll split the Nobel Prize money together, you and me. So... So let, let, let's move, let's start to moving towards that because, so you already mentioned Einstein. Obviously, there was this huge sort of schism in, in science at the, uh, in the early 1900s where Newton's laws were found to be, uh, insufficient, but science, physics sort of broke off into these two branches, the, the general relativity and special relativity world that describes the, the la, the huge and the fast moving uh, and the massive, uh, and then the quantum theories that describe the very, very tiny. And ever since then, there's been the quest to try and resolve those two and combine those two into one equation. Um, but I, I hadn't realized how much even quantum theory sort of started off as one thing and then split into more and more specific things as you discovered more about the world and uh, as more and more particles were discovered. Uh, that's right. You see, all of biology can be explained in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry can be explained in the language of physics. All of physics can be explained in the language of two things. Relativity, as you mentioned, the theory of the very big, black holes and big bangs, and the quantum theory, the theory of the very small. The problem is that these two great theories don't like each other. It's like having a left hand and a right hand. If God has a left hand and a right hand, they should talk to each other. Right. But these two theories don't talk to each other. Many people have tried to put them together, and the only theory which works, in which the left hand and the right hand work together, is string theory. So if Einstein had never been born, if Einstein had never been born, we would have discovered all of Einstein's equations as the lowest octave of a vibrating string. In fact, the quantum theory, with all the subatomic particles, also emerges as the lowest octave of the string. So this is a gorgeous picture. 2,000 years of research in science has given us relativity and the quantum theory, both of which can be combined as the lowest octave of a vibrating string. So wait, I'm sorry, the lowest octave applies to the quantum scale, but not to the um, giant relativity scale or, or, or both? I'm not, both. I don't totally. Both. So this combines relativity and the quantum theory. Both are correct within their domain. String theory marries them so that the two domains of the very small and the very big are unified into a single picture. So string theory works at the small level and it also works at the big level because both of these theories are nothing but the lowest vibration of the string. So then what's left, what, what are the gaps in that theory still? Or when you're talking about membrane versus string, is it just higher order dimension-wise that has yet to be yeah, there's sussed a lot out? Of, or? There's a lot of work to be done by young physicists out there that are maybe listening to this program. One is we now realize in addition to strings, we have membranes. So the equation I wrote summarizes all of string theory into an equation about two inches long. But now with membranes, right, you, you, we you don't... publish that in the book. It's, um, so it's, it's you and Dr. Kikawa who, Kof I didn't, I, I had no idea. I, I'd met you before on, uh, on Star Talk and knew you as a science communicator. I had no idea that this was sort of your pioneering field, the string field theory, uh, and this equation that's printed in the book. And it is, it's, it's barely 10, 15 characters long. That's right. I'm a research physicist. 
I do public speaking as a hobby, but basically yeah. I spend most of my time working with equations and trying to mm -hmm. complete this picture, this unification picture. So it's not quite in its highest form. So that's where young people still have an opportunity to finish the entire theory. And that's one reason why I wrote the book. So the young people will say, wow, the God equation is not quite there. We almost have it. Strength field theory is almost there, but it's not there all the way. So there's plenty of room for young people. So, so let's take a step back and, t and talk a bit about what string theory is, because this is something that I, I, I have only the most hand-wavy and tenuous grasp of. So could, could you explain what, what how even string theory came about and what it is and how, how that explains the, the universe as we know it? Well, the theory was discovered by accident back in 1968. Two postdocs were thumbing through a math book, and they came across a mathematical equation, the Euler-Beta function, which seemed to fit the interaction of pi mesons. Now, science is not supposed to be done this way. Science is when you do experiments, compare with data, and do more experiments. You don't look up in a math book and find an equation that, aha, allows you to probe the secrets of Mother Nature. But that's what happened here. And then eventually people realize, why is this equation working so well? It's because it describes vibrating strings. You see, we have point particles, electrons and neutrinos, but how many point particles are there? Hundreds of them. In fact, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, once said that the Nobel Prize in physics should go to the physicist who does not discover a new particle this year. <laughs> <laughs> We were drowning in subatomic particles. And then here comes string theory, which says that the whole shooting match, pi mesons, neutrinos, everything, are nothing but different musical notes. So if you had a super microscope, a super duper microscope, and can see an electron, you'd realize that it's not a dot at all. It's nothing but a vibrating rubber band. And the vibrating rubber band can vibrate at different frequencies. Each frequency corresponds to a particle from a distance. Close up, you realize that the electron, the neutrino, the quark, they're all the same thing. It's the same string, just vibrating in a different fashion. And so this allows Pythagoras's dream to come true. Pythagoras thought that a lyre string was the fundamental basis for the universe. Here we see that the lyre string is very, very small, but it is the paradigm by which we can then explain the richness and the diversity of the universe. And can I ask a dumb question about the conception of this string? Sure. Like, I, I guess I don't quite know how much I should think of it as a metaphor and how literal. Like, Does it have similar behavior to a section of string on the large scale that has fixed endpoints and, and vibrates in all places except for those ends? Or like... <laughs> You know, does it, does it have uh, harmonics in it, or is it a one frequency at a time sort of thing? Yeah, well, you're right. Um, the analogy with a string is perfect. Uh, the, the mathematics we use for lyre strings is the same mathematics we use for string theory in physics. We use the same equations, octaves, thirds, fifths, things that a musician would understand. We physicists incorporate in terms of the string. So it's the same string vibrating in different frequencies, giving you all the subatomic particles. So the universe, the universe is a symphony of all these vibrating strings throughout the universe. Every time you see an electron, it is nothing but one vibration of one string. Now, of course, it's the same string. All the properties are identical. So we know that all electrons are identical. All quarks are identical. And that's the reason why. All strings are identical, but they populate the universe. It's amazing. So, so the the next thing I find I find difficult to, like I guess impossible to uh, picture, but difficult to sort of comprehend is how the string theory makes doesn't make sense or doesn't work mathematically until you calculate things in ten dimensions. Yeah, that's the reason why initially people thought string theory was crazy, absolutely crazy, because these are not ordinary strings. These strings vibrate in 10 and 11 dimensional hyperspace. 
Now, at that point, you're, you're, you blink and your eyes roll up to the heavens and you shake your head. But now we physicists are realizing that the multiverse really comes out of the understanding of the universe. Our universe came out of the Big Bang, but the universe is quantum. It's a quantum universe, meaning that bangs can happen all the time. Even as we speak, universes are being created. So we get a multiverse. Our universe is a bubble, but it bumps into other bubbles out there, giving you a multiverse of bubbles. And that's exactly what string theory predicts. Now, children ask the question, mommy, daddy, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? Well, at that point, mommy and daddy don't know what to say. But you see, if we live on a bubble, we live on the skin of the bubble, the bubble expands in a dimension we cannot see, the third dimension in this case. Well, the same thing here. We live on the skin of a three-dimensional bubble. The universe itself is not three-dimensional. The universe itself is probably 11-dimensional. So this gives you this multiverse idea. Now, when I was a child, I had a problem because my parents were Buddhists, but I was raised as a Presbyterian. Now, in Buddhism, there is this nirvana. There's no beginning, no end to time. In Genesis, there is a point where the universe began. How can you reconcile these two? Well, now we realize that our universe had a beginning. Our universe had a Big Bang. But what is it expanding into? It's expanding into a higher dimension, a dimension beyond length, width, and height, a dimension that we cannot visualize because evolution only gave us the ability to visualize three-dimensional objects. So what is nirvana? Nirvana is this ocean of higher dimensions that our universe is expanding into. So what is our exp universe expanding into? 11-dimensional hyperspace. That is the true nirvana of the multiverse. It's a bubble bath. Our <laughs> universe is one bubble in a bubble bath, but the whole bubble bath is nirvana. So, so this is having already struggled to sort of understand the idea of string theory over the years when it's been mentioned to me. I, I think I, I hadn't really even been aware that string theory has now sort of taken the next step into this idea of M-theory, membranes, where even the strings themselves are 10-dimensional realizations of an 11-dimensional membrane. That's right. At first, we thought we had it. We had it. That string theory is it. That's all it is. It's 10-dimensional. But now we realize that these strings actually move in a higher dimension and 11 dimensions. Now, in 10 dimensions, there are five strings. Five possible strings can vibrate in 10 dimensions. And many physicists didn't like that. Why should there be five? Why can't there be six, seven, or one? Well, in 11 dimensions, five strings collapse into one membrane. So think of an elephant. If you say to yourself, well, how many dimensions does an elephant have? If you look at the tail of the elephant, you say the tail of the elephant is one-dimensional. This animal is one-dimensional. If you look at the feet, you would say that it's a trunk. No, it's two-dimensional. If you look at the ears, it's two-dimensional. But then if you look at the trunk, you say, no, it's three-dimensional. <laughs> so how many, how many dimensions is an elephant living in? Now we realize that strings, five strings, are nothing but five ways of expressing a 11-dimensional hyperspace. And if you guys ever figure out what this 11-dimensional hyperspace equation is, <laughs> tell me first, and we'll split the <laughs> Nobel Prize. And it has, to be, it has to be not messy, right? It has to be concise also to be what we're looking for. Probably oh. it's just one inch long, just the right. way e equals mc squared is half an inch long. You are sort of fair in the book to also talk about the critics of string theory. It's like string theory has been your area of research almost from the beginning of string theory, but it is it is not without controversy that string theory is a, as a theory because it's almost impossible to test or so far is not testable. Well, there are many ways of testing it. Um, first of all, we can look at dark matter, uh, which pervades the entire universe. Most of the matter of the universe is invisible. 
We think that dark matter is nothing but the next vibration, the next octave of the string. And two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, a shattering development took place in Geneva, Switzerland, where they had the Large Hadron Collider. They found a deviation from the standard model. So in other words, the highest version of the quantum theory, with all the subatomic particles, is called the standard model. It's ugly, it's contrived, but it works. That's why it's called the theory of almost everything. But we think that it's like the tail of a lion. If you see the tail of a lion, you know there's a lion someplace. So there's going to be a higher theory. And two weeks ago, this announcement was made. There seems to be a crack, a crack in the standard model, meaning that we may be witnessing the beginning of string theory as an experimental science. String theory predicts a lot of particles beyond the Large Hadron Collider, but that costs money. Wouldn't it be better to find slight cracks in the standard model responsible for, uh, the, for string theory? And that's why this development was very interesting. The slightest deviation in the standard model will hopefully give us a clue as to the correctness of string theory. Well, could, could we talk a bit about that? Because this is... This is a story that broke recently, and we hadn't had a chance to cover yet on the show. A, a few of our listeners had written in about this news story. Um, what exactly was it that they discovered in their experiments, and ha how does it diverge from the standard model as we know it? Well, the standard model is the ugliest theory ever proposed, but it's fundamental, <laughs> and it fits the data. It has 36 quarks and antiquarks, 20 free parameters, and three generations of redundant identical particles. So the electron is part of the first generation, but there's a second generation and a third generation. The second generation is called the mu meson. It's another subatomic particle. What does it look like? It looks like exactly like an electron, except it's heavier. Now, for me, that's ugly. Why should right. the electron have two particles, identical in every way, except one twin is heavier than the other twin. We've never seen that in nature, but there it is. Now we find out that these two mesons, uh, the, the electron and the mu meson, are slightly different in their properties. That means a standard model has a defect. And the standard model is perhaps just nothing but the lowest octave of the string. So that's why we're very interested. This could give us a clue as to the next set of vibrations of the string, as predicted by string theory. String theory predicts many generations of particles. So this is the first time we've had potential evidence that string theory maybe could be correct, experimentally. When you talk, you talk about the ugliness of the standard model, and this is something that comes up through the book quite a lot, is that this idea of both symmetry and beauty in equations that tend to be correct and whether you can predict uh, models of the universe based on symmetry and based on the beauty of the mathematics. That's right. Now, when you, when you talk to Einstein, let's say, about his conception of, of God, he would say that God created a beautiful universe, the God of Spinoza, the God of elegance, beauty, simplicity, not an ugly God. The universe could have been ugly. It could have been chaotic. It could have been random, but it's gorgeous. Why is it gorgeous? Symmetry. Symmetry allows you to unify forces. Electricity and magnetism are two different aspects of the same force, like a coin, up, heads, or tails of the same coin. And so we want our theories to be beautiful because that's the way, quote, God, unquote, would have created a universe. But the standard model, the, the most perfect uh, approximation to the subatomic world is ugly as sin. It's like taking an aardvark, a platypus, and a whale, <laughs> scotch taping them together, and claiming that's nature's highest evolutionary <laughs> creation. It's hard to believe that anything so ugly could be the fundamental theory of the universe. That's why this recent deviation announced two weeks ago is causing so much excitement because it could possibly signal the tail of a lion, that is, the beginning of string theory. By the way, speaking of the standard model and, and things that have preceded string theory, I didn't know about this 
other concept called renormalization that was a, another attempt at, at bridging the worlds of the very big and very small. How, can you explain that, how that worked? I don't quite get the... Yeah, so after, after 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of things, we've come up with two theories. The theory of the big, relativity, the theory of the small, that is, the quantum theory, and the two theories don't like each other. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you have a shotgun wedding, a marriage between relativity and the quantum theory, and you calculate things, what happens when two particles bump into each other? What do you get? You should get a number. Actually, you get infinity. Infinity means you made a mistake. Infinity <laughs> means you don't know what the hell you're doing. And that's called renormalization theory. So renormalization theory allows you to brush many of these infinities under the rug. But when you mirror relativity with, the, with uh, gravity, you cannot brush it under the rug. The theory is inherently incorrect. It blows up. It blows up in your face. Now, how does string theory get around this? String theory gets around because some of the terms, when you have two particles bump into each other, have positive charge. Other terms in the equation have negative charge. Because string theory is symmetrical, the positive charge and the negative charge cancel exactly. And what do you get? Zero instead of infinity. So all of a sudden, you can calculate. You can now calculate with string theory, and that's remarkable. That signals the presence of a higher symmetry, and that is beauty. What is beauty? To a physicist, beauty is symmetry. And for a physicist, it means symmetry allows you to cancel all the bad equations, all the bad numbers cancel, because positive cancels against negative exactly. <laughs> Hey Andy, we're talking about the quest for a theory of everything, and if only there was some kind of way to learn almost everything about everything. For, <laughs> I for, think I might have an idea. Do you, do you, what, what, what might that idea be, Andy? That might be The Great Courses Plus, specifically thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, where listeners can go and sign up for a free 14-day trial and have access to hundreds of lectures. We've talked about how vast their collection is. Um, there's no reason not to go check it out. And this episode, uh, we're talking about combining histories of sciences, old and new. You and I have both been watching Understanding Greek and Roman Technology on The Great Courses Plus. We have. And it's interesting that this episode of this book, even Dr. Kaku talks about how the theories of the likes of Pythagoras turned out to be far more relevant than we first thought. As, as the very latest in physics seems to back up some of their original concepts. Yeah, and people of the time pulled off amazing feats with what we would now consider relatively low-tech solutions. For example, building Trajan's Column in Rome, each marble drum weighing 60 tons each and somehow lifted into place with just the power of human muscle. So you can find out all about that and more, and any number of different subjects, pretty much any subject you can think of, if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably and which you will get a 14-day free trial that is available to our listeners. And for a limited time only, you could also get 20% off the annual membership if you sign up, if you enjoy the trial, which we suspect you will. So once again, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. While we're talking about things that the, um, the previous theories were unable to predict, you, you just mentioned dark energy and dark matter. And this is something that blew my mind in the book was... The fact that using the equations that we currently have for both the assumptions of relativity and quantum theory, the the value, the predicted value of dark energy in the universe is out by a factor of ten to the power of a hundred ten to the hundred and twenty, which is absurdly off. Yeah. When you want to take a look at the biggest mismatch between theory and experiment before string theory, the biggest mismatch is to calculate the, the dark energy, the energy of the expanding universe. When you calculate the energy of the expanding universe, you're off by 10 to the 120. That's one, the number one, with 120 zeros after it. That's mind-boggling. Yep. But, you know, string theory, of course, allows you to calculate these things, but even string theory has a hard time grappling with 100 10 to the 120. <laughs> 
But again, this is one of the unseen, un, unknown aspects of string theory. String theory is still evolving. It's still evolving. And we think we can calculate correctly that number. But that is the greatest mismatch between theory and experiment ever conceived of by the human mind. <laughs> the yep. human mind has never seen a number that big. Well, also the human mind is incapable of visualizing anything that big by quite some way. Like, I think humans find it hard enough to imagine a million, really hard to imagine what a billion of anything looks like. And, right. and, and what, that, what, you're just, that's just 10 to the 9. And what is a Google? Uh, the people who, invent, who created Google knew that Google was 10 to the 100. They thought that was the biggest number. Nope. <laughs> Dark energy <laughs> is even bigger than a Google. Yeah, that, 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 that is quite absurd. Andy had a question about, about futurism, because this oh, is the other... Yeah, you're obviously so well known for futurism, we would be uh, silly not to get into that a little bit. And I feel like your optimism about the future comes out in this book, because you quote people who have failed in the past, including Einstein. I mean, not to call him a failure, but you said that at some point he said, God is subtle but not malicious. But then in his later years, as he became frustrated with the lack of this unifying theory, he said, I have second thoughts, maybe God is malicious. Um, so, yeah, you, you seem like you're, in general, pretty optimistic about what the future will hold in string theory and, and everything else. Would you say that's true these days? Oh, yeah. I think we're getting closer and closer. And our instruments, our instruments are to the point we, where we can almost begin to test aspects of the theory. For example, gravity wave detectors. Gravity wave detectors won the Nobel Prize for three physicists recently. They're huge. They're several miles across looking for vibrations from black holes. But now we're thinking about putting them into outer space. LISA, the interferometry space antenna, LISA will detect radiation from the instant of the Big Bang itself. It'll give us baby pictures, baby pictures of the infant universe emerging from the womb. And we hope, we hope that LISA will also detect an umbilical cord an umbilical cord connecting our infant universe in the womb, connecting it to a mother universe. That is the multiverse idea, which allows us to go before creation itself. The radiation after the Big Bang can be tested, measured by LISA. We run the videotape backwards, and we can now see a glimpse of the pre-Big Bang universe. That, to me, is remarkable. Radiation from before the creation of everything. That is another consequence of experiment that is now on the books. Yeah, so this is, I, I don't think I really knew much about Lisa. So we, we talked before about, on the show, we've, we've done a few episodes on LIGO, um, which is the previous experiment that you're talking about. That's the Earth-based gravity wave detectors, which, you know, you can go back and listen to those episodes to find out more about how they work. But I hadn't realized that they're basically putting the same experiment in space at far greater distances. Um, and without the interference of things on Earth uh, as an issue. and That's right. And, and you were saying that that might make certain things in string theory testable in the way that you couldn't with human experiments. You know, you, no matter how big the Large Hadron Collider or its future spawn, the, the next generations of those could get, they still couldn't get even a micro micro fraction of the energy involved in the big bang which you can use as an you can almost use that as the collider if you you can if you can measure some of the radiation from that you could use that as a collider itself to see some of these particles and some of these um effects that's right the biggest particle accelerator the biggest atom smasher in the universe is the universe itself radiation from the big bang would give us insight into the universe before creation itself. Now, you mentioned LIGO. These instruments are many miles across, based in uh, Washington State and Louisiana. But in outer space, you can separate them by three million miles. Think of three satellites making a triangle in outer space, connected by a triangle of laser beams three million miles in extent. So this is the biggest machine of science ever conceived of by the human mind in outer space to give us baby pictures of the infant universe as it was created. 
That's amazing. And that is on the books. The European Space Agency and NASA have seriously considered funding this mission. So that is yet another, quote, proof, unquote, of string theory. The other proof is when we discover dark matter. Every chemistry textbook says that the universe is made out of atoms. That's not true. Most of the universe is invisible, made out of dark matter, which is predicted by the string theory. String theory predicts the next octave, a particle called the photino. The photino is massive, but it's invisible, just like dark matter. So in other words, if we find dark matter on the Earth with our particle detectors, that could be it right there. A theory beyond the standard model. That's what we need. So how far away is this LISA experiment from potentially happening? Well, any day now. Any day, somebody could announce from a detector in a, in a deep mine, they, they, they detected collisions of dark matter with a proton. That they photograph the spark caused when dark matter collides with the proton and shatters the proton. That could give us an understanding of dark matter on the Earth. Now, dark matter is used to hold the galaxy together. Without dark matter, the Earth could not exist. We would be thrown into outer space because the galaxy would be unstable. So we need dark matter to stabilize the Earth. And dark matter is moving through your body right now. Right now, we live in a wind, an invisible wind of dark matter penetrating your body. But we are so primitive with our equipment to detect it. Any day now, one of these laboratories, about 20 of them, may detect the presence of a shattering of dark matter in the laboratory. That would be another game changer. And, and the issue of detecting this is, is because of how rarely and lightly it interacts with any of the, the regular matter on our Earth. That's right. If I had dark matter in my hand, it would sift through my fingers as if my fingers didn't exist. I wouldn't even feel it. It would then drop to the ground, go right through the concrete, right through the core of the earth, all the way to China. In China, it would reverse direction and come all the way back to New York City. And it would oscillate, oscillate between New York and China. That's how strange dark matter is. And it's invisible. So, so the oscillation would just be, it's still affected by the gravity of the earth, but it's as if there's nothing in the way. So it's just acting like a sort of like a pendulum or like a spring bouncing backwards and forwards. Right. So when you see a picture of a galaxy, you think that's a beautiful collection of stars, but surrounding it is a halo, maybe 10 times bigger than the galaxy itself, holding the galaxy together. This is one of the biggest mysteries. What is holding the galaxy together? By rise, it should fall apart. The rotation of the galaxy is so fast, it should fly apart. But it doesn't. What holds the galaxy together? Dark matter. And if we find out what dark matter is, that could be the next octave of the string. So that's what it... So so the way we know gravi- dark matter must exist is because the rotations of the of the galaxy exceeds the sort of the center of the centrifugal spin or whatever it exceeds the gravitational pull that would be holding it together if it weren't for this extra matter somehow involved in it that's right by rights the milky way galaxy rotates 10 times too fast the centrifugal force is so great that the arms the arms of the milky way should fly apart and the earth will be flung into deep space but here we are in the milky way galaxy held together by an invisible matter called dark matter. So is it, is it also theorized that it would be at its most concentrated in the center of the spinning disk that is the Milky Way, and that's what accounts for all the gravity? Or is it just, it's got to be somewhere, and we don't know where? Well, we think, we think there's a shell, a shell around the galaxy that holds the galaxy together. And we have maps of it now. How do you get a map of invisible matter? Well, t- take a look at your glasses. Your glasses are invisible, yet you can see your glasses. Why? Because light is distorted as it goes through an invisible medium called glass. Same thing with dark matter. When light goes through dark matter, it's distorted. And then with the computer, you can calculate how much distortion there is. And bingo, you now have a map of invisible matter, just like having a map of your glasses. 
And that, that doesn't violate the fact that dark matter doesn't interact with us electromagnetically? Is it just purely the gravity that's bending the light? Yeah, it's purely gravity that bends the, the light. Not I, the electromagnetic force, not... The, the index of refraction is strictly due to gravity, not the electromagnetic force. Mm. So there are other things... You talk in the book about neutrinos, which I believe we have now detected. We, we can, even though they also... Neutrinos interact so rarely with matter they can't they have built detectors that are close to things like nuclear power plants that spill out so many neutrinos that the minute fraction of them that are detectable can be detected that's right and so the neutrino in some sense is a partner of the electron the electron and the neutrino just like electricity and magnetism are in some sense two sides of the same coin and that gives us the weak nuclear force now, why do we have earthquakes? Why do we have volcanoes? Believe it or not, it's because the center of the Earth is hot. Why is it hot? Because of the nuclear force. There's lots of uranium, thorium, and other radioactive materials at the center of the Earth. And what is that energy? That energy is from the weak nuclear force. And what is the basis of the weak nuclear force? The unity between electrons and neutrinos. That's why we have continental drift. That's why we have earthquake. That's why we have volcanoes. It's because of the properties of electrons and neutrinos. Yeah, because this is... Um, we actually, weirdly, strangely enough, had a volcano episode last week. Um, but I, I hadn't... I hadn't realized... So when, when Kelvin calculated the age of the Earth, he was off by a huge factor, and that's because he'd failed to account for the fact that the Earth was still generating heat because of these processes. That's right. Lord Kelvin was one of the great physicists of the 1800s. He was so famous that he's buried right next to Isaac Newton in Westminster Abbey. When I visited uh, Isaac Newton in Westminster Abbey, there was Lord Kelvin right next to him. But Lord Kelvin made this huge mistake. He thought, as you pointed out, the Earth should have cooled down in a matter of millions of years if it was molten. A few million years, the molten Earth should freeze over. But the Earth, of course, is billions of years old by looking at geology and looking at the evolution of life. So what could cause the Earth to heat up, to be hot, over billions of years? Well, that's the weak nuclear force. The half-life of uranium, U-238, is over 4 billion years. It takes 4 billion years for half of the radiation of uranium to decay away. So that's why the Earth is still hot, and that's why we are here. If it wasn't for that fact, humans would not be living on the Earth. Thank goodness for the weak force. <laughs> yeah, really. So, so it, am I right in thinking, because you, you talk about this through the book, that one of the, the stories throughout the book is the gradual unification of the different branches of science and the different theory and the different forces and that they're sort of two sides of the same coin the same way we've now managed i say we scientists have now managed to <laughs> uh have now managed to uh e equivocate the um electromagnetic forces and the strong and the weak forces but gravity is still its own thing that's also the same way that they haven't managed to combine quantum theories and relativity Right, there are four fundamental forces. The gravitational force, which holds us to the ground. The electromagnetic force, which lights up our cities. And the weak and the strong nuclear force. Three of the four can be unified using the quantum theory. The bad boy, the bad boy which does not unify <laughs> is gravity. Einstein's theory of gravity. So gravity and the quantum theory are based on two different pictures, two different mathematics. The quantum theory is based on particles, distinct, distinct particles, while gravity is based on smooth surfaces, smooth surfaces, and we move in a smooth space-time continuum. So they're very different. And how can you combine something that is very rough, like the quantum theory of particles, with something that is beautiful and smooth and elegant, like gravity? That's the problem. And if you can figure this out, you would be considered the next Einstein and be heralded as the great genius of all time. And hopefully it is one of our listeners. They're a very smart bunch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
I know your I know your time is short. You have to go. Um, to bring to bring things back to a human scale just for a second. I had a friend who heard I was going to be talking to you and is a big fan of your work and your future predictions. And he was curious if you had uh, had any major changes in any of your future predictions uh, in the last five years or so. Maybe just things on the human scale rather than on the uh, theory of everything scale. Uh, no, I made uh, two predictions in a book, The Future of the Mind. One prediction was that we would have digital immortality. We would live forever because we will digitize our personality, our memories, our experiences. And the other one is that the internet itself will mutate into brain net. We will send messages telepathically on the internet. And sure enough, both theories are moving lickety-split. In fact, Elon Musk of SpaceX is now even investing, investing in a company which wants to hook up the human brain to the internet. And so we're witnessing the next generation. The internet will be replaced by BrainNet, where we send thoughts, emotions, and feelings on the internet, and we will live forever. Of course, our biological body may not live forever, but what we call our personality, our memories, our dreams, our hopes, uh, will be digitized, and in that sense, our digital soul will live forever. That's what and, I wanted to hear. <laughs> and, and hopefully one of those digital souls will finally come up with the equation and and collaborate with you so you can you can share in that prize. Um, that, well, that's right. I would love to talk to Einstein, for example. Uh, someday somebody will digitize him. All his memories, speeches, lectures, notes will be digitized. And I'd love to have a conversation with the guy. Again, listeners, have at. <laughs> hadn't even occurred to me as a concept but that's fascinating uh, once again the book is called the god equation the quest for a theory of everything uh, how can our listeners find you on the, and, and everything you're doing uh, very easy just go to uh, mkaku.org mkaku.org or facebook i have four and a half million uh fans on facebook and i'm also on twitter so i'm very easy to reach on the internet mkaku dot uh, org m k a k u dot o r g. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you yeah, so much pleasure. for spending some of your time with us and for writing this great book. Uh, listeners, we'll link to the book, obviously, as we always do. And once again, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Okay. Thank you. Wow, what a fun episode. That was great. One of my favorite things about doing this show is that we occasionally, you know, we get we get hookups like this. We get we get to talk to people who we we wouldn't normally just be able to just pick the brains of uh, someone like Professor Kaku. Um, his book was great. We highly recommend it. Uh, as you know, go to, you can find him on Twitter and on Facebook, as he described. You can find us online always, probablyscience.com, on Twitter, at probablyscience, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you would like us to cover. And we'll be back next week with, I think, a regular episode with a comedian and stories from the week. So please do send those stories in that you would like us to talk about and any corrections and comments on the things that we talked about in previous episodes. Thanks and for listening. Thank you, listeners. See you next time. 